Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 462 of the podcast. It's November 9th, 2022. I guess today is John Grout. You'll learn more about him in a minute. He is an, a professor and an expert on mistakes and mistake proofing. So that's really the deep dive that we're taking here today. We'll talk about what kinds of mistakes are easier to mistake proof and which are more difficult. Uh, we're going to talk about how to create a culture of admitting mistakes, detecting mistakes, learning from mistakes. Um, we'll talk about that and more. So to learn more about John, to get a free uh, ebook from him about mistake proofing in healthcare and more, look in the show notes or you can go to leanblog.org slash 462. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Professor John Grout. He is the former dean of the Campbell School of Business at Barry College in Rome, Georgia. He was recently a guest on My Favorite Mistake. That was episode 186. So I encourage you to go check that out. You can hear John's favorite mistake story and our conversation there. Um, you can find it at markgraven.com slash mistake 186. So if you're not already listening to that, find my favorite mistake wherever you're listening um, to this podcast. Um, and so I think it's going to be you know, a different conversation here than we had in the last episode, a little bit of overlap, but I think um, a different conversation for, for a different audience. Um, John and I, um, we, we, we collaborated on a Lean Enterprise Institute webinar that I was the host for, I think it was in 2010. I'm still trying to fi find out if that is online, if the recording of that is still available. There are some broken links that um, haven't been mistake-proofed, if you will. So I'm trying to follow up with the LEI folks. And if I get that sorted out, I'll put a link in the show notes. So um, before we, before I tell you a little bit more about John, let me say, first off, um, you know, thank you for joining us. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm doing great. I hope you're doing well also. Yeah, I'm excited about um, the conversation here. Um, I guess, you know, gosh, everything that was from that webinar in 2010, I'm sure, I'm sure it holds up, even if, if you or I or both of us barely remember that that was so long ago. Yeah, I actually think uh, it's more relevant today and uh, more importantly, more easier to implement today than it was back then. So let's leave that as a teaser. I, we will come back <laughs> to that question of whether mistake proofing um, concepts are easier to implement today and in how so. So keep keep listening for that. Um, but a little bit more about John Grout. He's currently the chair of the Technology, Entrepreneurship, and Data Analytics Department, and he is the David C. Garrett Jr. Professor of Business Administration. He's overseen the development, approval, and implementation of Barry College's Creative Technologies Program and their makerspace called Hackberry Lab. Um, John is uh, researched mistake proofing extensively. He's published numerous articles on mistake proofing. In, in 2004, he received the Shingo Prize for his paper, The Human Side of Mistake Proofing, that was authored with Douglas Stewart. He's also consulted with a large variety of businesses to help mistake, mistake proof their processes. And he's published, there's a, a free ebook that's uh, available online through the AHRQ. It's Mistake Proofing the Design of Healthcare Processes. So I encourage if you're working in healthcare or otherwise, go grab a copy of that. That's still available online. And um, John's website is mistakeproofing.com. Uh, that, that, that healthcare ebook is still available to, to your knowledge, right? Yes, it is. 
Uh, it is absolutely still out on the web. And uh, I also have a PDF copy on my hard drive if anyone can't get it any other way. So uh, I hope people will go check that out. And you know, there, there's probably a lot to offer for a reader that's that's not working in healthcare in terms of looking for different ideas that help them think about their own mistake proofing. Would, would you agree with that? Uh, I would agree with that. I, the framework is set up to use a whole bunch of existing quality management and um, reliability uh, modeling tools to help you think through how to create mistake-proofing devices, environments where you're not sure exactly what you should be doing. So I think one of the fallacies that we sometimes see is that we assume, well, the saying is that, you know, a, a problem well-defined is half-solved. And uh, you know, that's probably true, but there are those cases where you see something happening and you don't really have a good vocabulary of how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And this book will provide that vocabulary. Yeah, so I hope people will check that out. And again, there's a, a link uh, in the show notes and you can find it uh, in John's website, mistakeproofing.com. Um, so, so John, there's there's one question. It's become a habit, I guess, recently of asking different guests you know, their origin story, if you will. Like, how did you first learn about mistake proofing? Was it in a broader context of learning about lean or the Toyota production system? I'm curious, what was your initial introduction and, you know, what what, what sparked, you know, a, a, a really deep focus in this? So back in 1991, uh, I was teaching at Southern Methodist University and they were in the middle of the TQM furor. Um, and uh, they asked me to teach a quality course. Now, I had had lots of statistical quality control training, both in my undergrad and grad programs. Uh, but I wanted to do a thorough read through of everything that was out there. And as I was looking through it, um, it seems like Schoenberger had said something. He was one of the very early writers on the lean side. Um, and he had mentioned Pokeyoke. And so I was interested in you know, what it was, just to know whether it should go in the course or not. And I found it very difficult to find anything about Pokeyoke. And I finally stumbled on Shingo's book, mm -hmm. uh, ordered it, had it sent in, and read it. And it is not kind to statistical quality control. Shingo's book, yeah. He kind of says statistical quality control has all these problems and here are the issues. And I was about to teach this stuff. And so mm -hmm. I had to sort out who was right. Mm -hmm. um, and I have done that to my satisfaction and have published academic journal articles based on that. Um, and so... Uh, and I now do a lot of mistake proofing, but I still think Shingo might have gotten a few things wrong. So I, I, I was going to ask you to elaborate on that. I mean, you know, first off, for people who who might not know the terminology, you know, how, how, how would you summarize, first off, statistical quality control? So my view of statistical quality control is you have acceptance sampling on one side. And I think, by and large, people have figured out that that doesn't really help the, the core of the problem. It, all it does is keep product out of your factory, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the other is statistical process control, which involves control charts and 
three standard deviation limits above and below the mean. And when you have unusual products, things that go outside those limits, you need to find out what's going on and take action. Now, in terms of Shingo's mistake, I think his main mistake was he inferred that every time you had a defect, you were out of control or that a remedial action was required every time you have a defect. And I think that the whole notion of process capability is the idea that if you can't consistently kick your field goal through the goalposts, that um, that you have to work on the variance. You can't just take one-off things and adjust based on individual defects. You have to manage the entire process. Um, and if you have a process that's in control and you make adjustments based on individual defects, you may be making the process worse. Tampering, if you will, was the term Tampering. demming and exactly. other used over adjusting a process. Yeah. And so Shingo didn't kind of focus on that aspect. And so kind of blurred control limits and process limits. Mm -hmm. That is, or excuse me, control right. limits and tolerance limits or specification right. limits. Right. Right. Uh, and so he was conflating the engineering limit of this will function, this won't, with the statistical limit of this is usual, this is unusual. Mm -hmm. And and, and you know, I think we 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 can boy, we can keep diving, you know, in, in into this topic of, you know, is mistake proofing a binary, you know, in spec or out of spec sort of determination versus the idea that I think would come from SQC and SPC that being closer to the center line of your specifications and tightening the variation would be better where a lot of mistake, I think a physical mistake proofing of a product flowing down a line. And if the product is too big, it bumps some sort of barrier and gets kicked to the side. That's yeah. it's, it's a go, no go gauge in, in that case, but that might not really be the best we can do from a quality perspective. Right. Right. And so I think it's, it's worthwhile to have defects not make it to the customer because the cost of that is almost always way higher. And so Shingo had a variety of different inspection techniques. He talked about um, uh, successive checks and self-checks. Successive checks is when a downstream operation runs your, your product through a go-no-go -no -go gauge. Your self-checks are when you do it. And of course, it's always better if you do it than if someone else does it. Uh, but then he had something called source inspections. And I think that's really his kind of gold standard concept, which is that you need to inspect the conditions that will lead to high quality and make sure those exist before you produce the product. And it's also where it fits very nicely with statistical process control. Because if you have an out of control point, it's saying something unusual has happened and your job is to go into the process, understand it, explore it, do experiments, whatever's required to find out why you had that out of control point. Once you find out why, you need to take that precondition for good product and test that precondition. And a source inspection is how you do that. And source inspection would be in the case of a manufacturer back at the supplier or on receipt into your factory. So I think you're focusing on the product. And what I recommend is that we focus on the process 
And so mm-hmm. we're going to look yeah. at a process yeah. and say, is the temperature right? Or is the machine setup correct? Or is the, you know, if something comes out of calibration, is there a way for the device itself to say, yo, I'm out of calibration? Um, so we want the process to talk to us and source inspection is how we get it to do that. And so, and typically it's done very, with very simple kinds of means um, to make it obvious that something's going wrong before it causes a problem. Yeah. And there's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, SPC, I mean, I saw this, you're judging up memories from my first year, especially at General Motors 1995. Uh, executives confusing the difference between uh, the control limits on the SPC chart, which are calculated based on process and how much variation there was. And then that would be part of the input into the process capability calculation. But they would confuse specification limits with control limits, I think, mm-hmm. you know, to great detriment. So, I mean, you know, the very real scenario here, I'm curious how you would react or coach somebody on it. So. You, you've got somebody on, um, you know, frontline uh, production worker is doing their SPC checks and they notice, hey, um, something has drifted above the upper limit. We should stop and do something. Management says, well, it's in spec. The part's good. Why the hell would we stop production? I think the answer there is that you would stop production or, you know, I am not dogmatic about stopping production. Um, what I think you would do is go figure out what's going on with the machine. Why did it go above the limits and try and resolve that issue without ever making a defect? So, you know, at some level, I, I know maybe the orthodoxy is you stop the machine. But if you can figure it out without stopping the machine, then you've got an, you know, it's sort of like internal and external setup. You know, you, you would love to figure it out while the machine is running. But if you can't, I think that there's a benefit to be had by stopping the machine long enough to see if you can figure out what that special cause mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And then work out a system for inspecting for that special cause. Mm-hmm as a source inspection using Pokio. Yeah. And, 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 and thank you. Yeah. That, that's, that's, a, that's a good nuance there. If, if the point is protecting the customer and, you know, do, doing that investigation versus not doing the investigation, like, you know, the, the process we were working on was, you know, I'm thinking of a, a machining line where um, this is where memories and, Technical details were either or either fuzzy or I never fully understood. But a lot of times the debate was being framed in terms of um, do we keep producing or not? I don't think that middle ground was being explored necessarily, and that that could be a different problem. You know, we having knee jerk reactions is so easy in life, and it in some ways that's what statistical process control is all about. You know, don't adjust the process unless you have something that's out of control. And we all want to say, oh, that's a defect. Let's fix it. And what SPC says is if it's just generic, normal process variation, you, fixing it does not involve 
adjusting it based on a single defect. Yeah. Or adjusting it based on, I mean, I think the worst form of tampering, and this goes back to Deming and the funnel experiment of saying, well, this part, this, 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 this hole in the engine block is larger than the center line of the spec. So let's tweak the machine and try to make the next one a little bit smaller. And then, you know, that, that, that really amplifies variation in a really bad way. Exactly. But I think um, back to field goals uh, for a minute, and I, I, I could bring at some point um, a friend of mine who does a lot of Lean Six Sigma work, and I've um, he, he was a guest on my favorite mistake, uh, Brian Hurley. He was a place kicker at the University of Iowa on their football team. So he, the, he understands process capability very well. Well, this is why I would be curious to put, to pull him into um, the discussion because um, a field goal anywhere between those goalposts, even if it hits the goalpost and still goes through, is worth the same three points. Yeah. So there's that go, no go, good, not good kind of binary. The kick was in, the, the result of the kick was in spec or not. But I'd be curious, um, you know, back to your point of source inspection to see if I if this analogy is a way of thinking through it. Source inspection on the kicker might look at their mechanics and like the leg angle or different different things of saying, well, if, if the le the leg angle is more consistent, then the kicks are more likely to be good. Is that? Yeah, and so yeah. in some ways, um, I don't know if it's necessarily some of the things that you would call a source inspection don't look a lot like an inspection. So, for example, if you have a kicker and he is practiced and practiced, and what he knows is that he lines up his shot. He steps back three steps, but then he'll step sideways two steps. The two steps sideways are his effort to get the right angle of approach to get the ball to go where he wants it to go. And so he's built into the process a way of determining where the starting place ought to be. From my perspective, that really borders on a source inspection, you know. Um, I would be hard if they said, oh, that's a source inspection. I would be hard pressed to say, oh, no, it's not. Um, I, I think it's really close. And so, you know, source inspection, sometimes inspection's not a great word for it um, because it's just, you know, some, in some ways it's good management. And it doesn't have to be sophisticated. It doesn't have to be based on some computer-aided anything. Uh, it could be always taking two steps to the right. Um, I put my parking ticket when I go to the airport in my wallet. And the reason I do that is it means I can't leave my car without knowing I've got my wallet in my pocket. Right. And, you know, you get into the airport, you don't have your wallet. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> right. And so Plus it's, pass, it's sort of passport in your bag, but no, but I get your point. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's procedural. <laughs> Right. And so calling it an inspection probably is stretching things a little. And yet I think that's what Shingo has in mind. And it, it sounds more like maybe in TPS speak, um, going to the Gemba, understanding your process and the connection between process and results. Absolutely. And mistake proofing and particularly source inspection tends to be very, very idiosyncratic. It, it, it's precise to your particular process. Which is why, you know, when people would pay me money to come and talk to them about mistake proofing, 
they, they would say, well, how do we mistake proof this? And I said, well, I, I don't know, because I don't have any of the detailed knowledge that's necessary to design a really good mistake proofing device. That's why I wrote a book like the, the uh, mistake proofing, the design of healthcare processes. It was because um, I wanted to give what I knew to them because they had all the detailed knowledge to actually implement it. Yeah. So well, let me let me come back to healthcare in a minute because that's the more meaningful, life changing, um, uh, you know, Im- implications and application of of this. But just you know, one other thing, just to think about kicking for a minute, you know, those two steps. There's probably this question of how consistent are those steps. Mm-hmm. Right. If I two steps is not always the same. So how do you train yourself, even if the wind is blowing really hard, that those two steps are the same size would probably yeah. be an indicator of quality. Yeah. Um, so that that's a kind of a meta question to me. Um, you know, a question above the question. Um, I think that, you know, in their case, they don't get to take a measuring tape out on the field. No. no. Um <laughs> Although I don't know that that's ever been tested, but well, there there was there was something that happened recently in an NFL game. What was illegal and what was a penalty was it was a wet field and they brought a towel. I'm pretty sure it was an NFL game. They brought a towel out onto the field and the holder was kind of trying to dry the part of the field where the kick was <laughs> going to be placed, and and that was penalized. So a tape measure really? even had the time that might also be considered somehow in, but they said that the towel was interfering with the field. The tape measure isn't changing the field. So I don't know. Yeah, that's a conjecture. I'm not sure I care if you <laughs> actually experience or not, but, you know, I think every time he practices, one of the things he's practicing is how wide are those steps? Um, and Hopefully he gets it to the place where it's muscle memory. And as long as he can get the game circumstances out of his head, which is the hard part of kicking anyway, um, he can take those two steps. He's ready to go and he kicks it. Or it may be that the variability of his steps is small enough that it doesn't impact his CPK. That you know, his process capabilities are just fine, even if he takes a big step versus a small step, because the posts are quite a ways apart. Yeah. Well, you, you, you say, you know, you talk about muscle memory. I have, um, boy, I've probably only tried kicking a football like that once, and it was not in any sort of game setting. It was just being out on the field. Um, but, uh, I think of a, 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 during a marching band rehearsal, because I was in the marching band for eight years in high school and college. So there's a point where you're talking about the, the distance of your steps, traditional marching band. Um, I, I won't spend too much time on this, I swear. Um, eight steps every five yards, mm-hmm. so that's 22 and a half inches per step. And you want each of those steps to be the same because of the quality in the, you know, the, the, the dimension of quality of how the band looks when you're marching, how yeah. straight everything lines up are your lines. And the ideal would be that every step is 22 and a half inches. So a line is continually looking perfectly aligned. But that quality check is that you can kind of peek down and you're not supposed to move your head down. There's another you know visual thing. But if the ball of your foot is hitting that yard line, which are thankfully marked off every five yards, you can gauge how you're doing. Now, you don't want to be taking a bunch of small steps and make up for it with one big step at the end. But that muscle memory actually becomes quite good where you can test it 
by closing your eyes, marching 10 yards. And boy, if your right foot ended up right on that yard line, then you got it dialed in. It's remarkable what the human body can do very consistently. And yet that's also the cause of the problem with mistake proofing. One of the reasons mistake proofing is hard is because people don't make mistakes very often. But when they do, it can be catastrophic. And so it's it puts it outside the realm of normal statistics because statistic is not statistics are not good at rare events. And that's what human mistakes are all about is the rare event. You know, human beings as a, you know, as as a process is very reliable, you know, one in a thousand, one in 10,000, you know, we get things right all the time. It's just that one in a thousand times that it's a problem. And so that's why when you design your mistake proofing device, you're, you're thinking about those kinds of issues and triggering when, um, when those have happened and stopping the process right then. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to put football field behind us now. Let's think a little bit more about operating room, even before we get into definitions here. So the thing about healthcare rare events, um, let's say, you know, um, you're, you're the patient and the surgeon operates on the wrong side or the wrong site. I don't know the exact numbers, but that happens very rarely. And we're not going to fall back on, well, on average, they're getting it right because the impact right. when they don't is huge. Nor is it subject to any kind of normal statistical process control. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, there's not a bell curve of how wrong are they? It's either, you know, it's right or wrong. Yeah. So are, are, do, do you have thoughts or experiences around, and I realize this is probably a, a very complex thing to try to error-proof, but if, if, the, if the problem statement is um, that rare mistake of the wrong side or wrong site, what what would part of your thought process be about how to try to error-proof that? Well, I think that a lot has been done using something that they call the universal protocol, which is to sign your site. So if you're having surgery on your left arm, they should be explaining to you the procedure well enough and then asking you to write your name where the cut's going to occur. I've also heard people say that they write no on the other arm. That doesn't help at all. And the reason it doesn't help at all is because then if they drape you for an appendectomy, you're out of luck. Right. Because no one will, you know, it presumes that you're on one of the two arms. And sometimes the wrong site is an entirely wrong right. surgery. Yeah, it's, it's not a bilateral. It's a yeah difference. It's the wrong surgery. And there. over time, if the surgeon knows I'm only going to cut if I'm cutting through the person's signature, um, that's a pretty decent signal. And when you add to that um, the timeout where the entire surgical team stops for a minute and says, okay, let's all agree about what we're doing here. We're operating on the left um, arm below the elbow and we're doing this procedure. Here's how it's going to work. Here's about how long it's going to last. And you know, even things like do they introduce each other around the room so that everybody knows everybody else, or at least has some sense of who they are. Um, and then they all look at the site and there's a signature there, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Is it a perfect mistake proofing device? 
I, I have yet to figure out a perfect mistake proofing device for that particular application. Yeah. It, it, it seems like a lot of that is dependent on our ability or our willingness. It's probably the better word, our willingness to follow the quote unquote universal protocol. Right. Do we have data on how often that's really occurring or not occurring? There probably is data, but I don't have that data. I mean, my 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 little bit of exposure to, to operating rooms is I, I have a question, where's that data coming from? Yeah. It's, it's certainly not being universally tracked no. in a really reliable data sort of way. In fact, my wife was in for some surgery and I asked the nurse about a timeout procedure, and she says, Oh, they always clean the room thoroughly between operations. And I'm like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's terrible. Not what I, yeah. That is not the answer. Right. Um, and the anesthesiologist, I said, so in this particular case, because this was internal surgery that was uh, female surgery, so there was no kind of external body uh, incision going on. And so I said, so how does the universal protocol work in a case like this? And uh, I forget what he said, but it it was like he totally whiffed on the answer. He just came nowhere close to understanding that I was saying, in a case where the site isn't an external uh, incision, what do you do then to make sure you're doing the right right operation? And he he had no idea. Um, one of my students in an evening MBA class was the chief operating officer of this hospital. So I sat down and typed out an email in the waiting room and sent it to him and said, I just want this date, date and time stamped that you've got these issues mm -hmm. and it's making me nervous. Yeah. Now, surgery went off fine, no problems. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my view was I want to be on record that yeah. this is not what I had in mind. And I ended up um, on the quality board for that hospital mm -hmm. years later. And they're like, oh, I recounted the story. And they're like, oh, you're the guy. <laughs> and to their credit, their quality culture was such that that story still remained in active memory to the people I was talking to mm -hmm. like five, 10 years later. Yeah. And that I admire. And, and this is all, I mean, you touch on culture and behavior and there's, I'm sure, elements of psychology. This becomes a fairly complex thing as opposed to the physical size of a part that we've been cutting, you know, um, in a, in a, back in a factory. Um, so, you know, kind of recap, and I've seen it go both ways. I, I've, I've even, I had a friend of mine send a picture where um, somebody I used to work with, she did, she was a Six Sigma black belt. Her mm -hmm. husband had a broken collarbone. And um, they sent a picture where they had written no on the the the, the non-broken collarbone. Well, it was painfully obvious, painful to him. Like you could vi obviously visually see that's the broken one. And they they thought, well, okay, thank you for following the protocol um, because you don't want to be in a situation of like, well, we don't need it this time. But to your point, like you could write no on an almost infinite number of body parts instead of marking the one spot. Right. right, right. And at the start of all of this, um, one in four orthopedic surgeons would have a wrong site surgery during their career. Mm -hmm. So that's rare, but not nearly rare enough. Right. And there's, uh, yeah, so, you know, again, on soapbox from a universal protocol, I, 
I think of it as so-called universal protocol, like universal yeah. is the ideal. And, it, and it ought to be done every time. It ought to be. And hopefully the right form of it, because there would be variation around you signing the spot versus the doctor signing it. Now, if I'm having back surgery, I probably can't literally write on, on my lower back, but I could see where they would introduce opportunities for error. If the doctor is signing it, and let's say you've already been given some medication that makes you drowsy, right. if, if the x-ray has been flipped and they mark the left arm and you're barely aware of it, that could lead to a mistake. Absolutely. And, and that would not be the universal protocol. Right. Uh, and in some ways, far better to have a loved one, like you would say to your mm-hmm. wife, okay, I can point to it. I just can't write my name there. Yeah. Put, put it right here. Um, to me, that would be better. Yeah. So, you know, the, these, the, the, the universal protocol is supposed to help prevent one form. There's this terminology that, again, I think is sort of ideal or optimistic never events. I, I definitely <laughs> I refer to these as so-called never events because they happen like never is not. I mean, that, that, that's the goal. It's not the reality. Right. It's like zero defense. So tell me, and for those who are listening and not watching on YouTube, I'm quite intentionally wearing a hat that says zero. That is a reference to zero harm from the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. John noticed this, of course, when we got on. So it's, I'm, I was going to ask you your, your thoughts on, on this idea of um, aiming for zero, talking about zero. I think it's the only way to go. Um, I think it makes perfect sense to aim for zero. And in all of these cases, you know, if a customer gets a defect, that's a problem. One defect is a problem. And so zero should be the target. Now, getting there, it all depends what environment you're working in and what kind of knobs and tools and dials that you can turn to make things better. Um, one of the things I love, well, back in the old days, I guess it was uh, Crosby said that uh Quality is free. And his argument was that the cost of preventing defects was always less than the cost of the defects. And I think through the years, people have just kind of stopped arguing about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, think- I argued with, uh, or not, not just I, some of my classmates in uh, grad school at MIT that had a, a background in manufacturing. We actually did end up arguing with a microeconomics professor who really was still teaching this idea of, you know, the optimal quality levels mm-hmm. and these assumed trade-offs that better quality costs more. And at some point it ain't worth it. And we're like, but that trade-off isn't true. And he, he, he basically, basically, uh, I remember he got to a point where he was like, okay, you all need to, you all need to shut up so I can finish my lecture. Like it was a little more polite. <laughs> we did talk about it after the fact, because we were hoping to try to educate him from what we were seeing in industry and he was still pretty upset that we were kind of derailing his lecture. Well, I think the issue is that if you look at it from a statistical perspective, if you're on a normal curve, and if it really is infinite tails, it's hard to get to zero when it's an infinite tail. Um, it's also hard if you've got that infinite tail driving the prevention and appraisal part of the old concept of cost of quality. But then you look at mistake proofing and you say, okay, can we virtually eliminate a mistake at a finite cost that's that's reasonable, that's not too expensive? And the answer is 
Of course you can. And we've got lots of examples where people have done things and the errors have gone away. Like until you have a different process, that error is not going to occur again. And it's done using, you know, a, a, a pin or a piece of steel sticking up or um, a little sensor. Now, with the sensor, you do add on some appraisal costs because you've got to keep it calibrated. But as long as you keep it calibrated, it's going to do what it's supposed to do. And so, you know, I'm I'm of a mixed mind on, on zero defects as a practical kind of theoretical matter, mm-hmm. but as a practical everyday matter, it's clearly the right target. And, and I think in relatively simple error proofing applications, you really can reach zero defects. So like, oh, again, like a simple go, no go gauge as parts are flowing down a line, you could say, unless the error proofing device failed somehow, that that would be perfect right. mistake proofing. But then yeah. you get into more complex systems and you know, coming back to Toyota, as much as they talk about quality at the source and going back to Shingo and long, long practice of mistake proofing. 2019, the last opportunities I had to go to a, a Toyota plant in Japan, they have final inspection. And like, to, that might be surprising to some people of like, well, why wait? Why? I thought, I thought inspection was waste. Like if we're going to be dogmatic and Toyota, I think is decidedly not dogmatic on things like this. Yeah, I, I've often thought that that would be an interesting research paper to write, which is when is the optimal time to stop inspecting? And it it's, it's, seems to me a challenging question to, to answer. Um, you have to make some presumptions about the process that are difficult to make. Because you, you could err, you, you could keep doing final inspection well beyond the time it's necessary, but you know, and this is a story I've told before, I think in other episodes, 1995 General Motors, there was a design intent um, for the, 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 the engine factory that quality was going to be built in. Mm-hmm. And they decided to eliminate the, they used to do a, a hot test at the end of engine assembly, fire up the engine, make sure it's working fine. And there was sort of like this dogmatic of like, well, we don't need that anymore because we're building quality in. So then unfortunately, that first hot test was happening after the engine was installed in a Cadillac. And at the end of the Cadillac assembly line, they would go to fire up the engine to drive it off the line. And going back to the engine block machining, if there was some part where the hole was too big and now this engine is literally uh, got black smoke coming out of it, all the potentially defective engines between there all the way back to machining could have been like 2000 bad parts and hundreds of assembled engines, a hundred already installed in cars. Like that was just, that was the mistake of ending inspection too soon. And it's a presumption that, um, that entropy doesn't happen. And entropy is one of those laws you can't get away from. Uh, I've got another example of that. Uh, Frito-Lay was, um, this would have been back in the 90s, so it's a long time ago. Um, but they had their tortilla chip production down to a science. And they started doing everything associated with the science of getting that chip right. And they started losing taste tests, blind taste tests, to Eagle Brand, which was a brand back then. And Eagle Brand was winning 
in the taste tests for uh, for blind taste tests. Now, if it was branded, people still liked Frito-Lay better, but if it was unbranded and they couldn't tell, they liked the Eagle brand better. And Frito-Lay, to their credit, said, you know, we can't have this. This is not acceptable. And so they realized that no one was tasting the chips. And they found out that you need to have a person on the line producing chips, tasting the chips. So it's that final inspection. And so they hired an artist and they made um, a chip that was a little raw, one that was just right, a little one that was a little cooked too much. They're interested in the amount of blister on the chip. You know, it was amazing stuff. We would never care about that, but they cared about it. And that's why the chips turned out good. And so they would hold the chip up and they would, you know, look at the chip and say, you know, which, which model does it look like? And then they would eat the chip. And then they had a bag of gold standard chips. And they would eat the gold standard chip and say, does it taste like that? And it's like, oh, yeah, those taste about the same. Um, and they had a whole procedure to keep a gold standard bag in stock. Right. Because you had to rotate it through. You couldn't let it sit there for two weeks because then it wasn't a gold standard chip. Say, it's stale now. Yeah. Yeah. So someone's so, deciding what's the gold standard and how accurate are they in deciding that? Yeah. And so through time, if that gold standard gets messed up, yeah, you could have problems. But, you know, they did their best. And at some level, it still depends on someone eating the chip and going, oh, yeah, that, that tastes okay. Yeah. And I'm sure there are people with more refined palates than mine who could do that well. And that's where it comes back to how do we define quality? We could be looking at process measures or variables that really don't matter to the customer. We might right. think we're really dialing it in on quality in a way that is really pretty meaningless to the business. Yeah. Yeah. So Frito-Lay like wanted 15% broken chips or less. You know, once my kid picks up the bag off the shelf and jams it in the cart, you know, that metric is out the window. I mean, it sounds like the old story that may or may not be true of like, you know, uh, the Japanese supplier getting an order from the American automaker and the punchline of the story in this case would be, um, here's your bags full of broken chips that you wanted, you know? Yeah. 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 We separated out the 15%. They're here. The rest of them are fine. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And that goes back to a name that um, is really going back uh, to Gucci. And the whole idea that any variance is worse than, you know, that, any amount of variance should be reduced. Um, and I haven't heard his name in forever, but I think his idea is still true that if you can get variance as low as possible, that you're better off, even if even if it functions just as well with higher variance. The, the, this is the Taguchi loss function. And if Taguchi invented football, and I've, I've actually drew a chart like this once where um, a Taguchi football game nowadays would have some sort of laser measurement and the points on a field goal would be determined based on how close it was to the center of the goalpost. You would get maybe four points for a kick that was perfectly centered all the way down to like a half point if you barely missed the upright. Yeah, you can have a little post sticking up and whichever one you knocked off as it went through would. Uh, uh, see, yeah, I jumped to technology. There could be a bunch of yeah, a bunch of uh, pool noodles or something. Going yeah. across, you know. which is instructive in terms of mistake proofing, because it's so easy to think you've got to have a laser to do it. And 
you don't. Sometimes it's a pin on a die that keeps you from putting the part in backwards. Um, some, you know, some of the best mistake proofing I've ever seen are these devices that are $25 or less. And in Shingo's book, of course, nowadays that would be a $50 part because of inflation. But, you know, he had about a quarter of his ideas were 25 bucks or less. And fully half of them were $100 or less back then. So that would be $200 now, $250. But would anybody pay $250 to eliminate a mode of defect in their factory? I'm guessing lots of people would sign up for that. So then you, you mentioned earlier, let's come back to the thing that, that we teased early on, where you're saying compared to 2010, it's easier to mistake-proof things today. Is that because of technology or why, why is that? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely because of technology. And I was actually thinking more like, you know, the the heyday for mistake proofing was like 95 to 2000. That's when, you know, um, there were, you know, conferences about Pokeyoke. You know, there's no conference about Pokeyoke anymore. And yet now more than ever is the time to do it because now you can get. Um, so with the maker movement came this thing called an Arduino. It's a little programmable logic controller that costs 35 bucks. And once you've got it sorted out, you can buy uh, an Arduino mini for 10 bucks and you can hook it to a limit switch or to a light sensor or to any number of different kinds of sensors, a hall sensor that will do magnetic. And I've got undergrads in their first semester doing prototypes where they can do basic programmable logic controller mistake proofing. And, you know, you couldn't do that in 2000. Back then, you, you had to, you know, figure out how to do it on an ABB or a, um, a square D or, you know, one of these um, industrial programmable logic controllers that were hundreds of dollars. So and now it's a 10 buck thing. It's yeah. so easy. So it makes me wonder, back in 1999, 2000, when I was working at Dell Computer, one of the, the parts of the process is what they call the pick to light line, where mm -hmm. based on sure. that order for those computers, um, people would pick the different parts, the hard drive and fan and different things that would go into a kit that was then sent down to the assembly station. And I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked. Like one version of pick to light would be lights that say, here are the ones you grab. I'm pretty sure they had some error proofing where if you tried to grab the wrong one, there would be some sort of indicator or a light or a buzzer or something. Yeah. And, and there was a company called Spies Tech back in the day that had one that had a, had a laser um, kind of a, not a laser, a, um, a light curtain. maybe. Yeah. A light curtain. Right. Yeah. And it, it would cycle around. And if you stuck your hand in the right spot, it would turn the light off. If you stuck your hand in anywhere else. It would say that's the wrong spot and a buzzer would go off. They had good luck with it. They were down to their their pick went from like 200 parts per million down to two. And by the way, that's the hardest. That's the hardest mile in all of this is going from 200 parts per million, which is fantastic, to two, which is world class. Yeah. So then I bet that technology would be a lot cheaper today, is what you're saying. Oh yeah, I've got undergrads who could do that all day long. Yeah. But then I think of this. This is so also to, to to put this in perspective. Yeah. I had an undergrad who, for his senior project, created a vision system to look at a box with 
fuses in it. So, you know, the automotive fuses with the number printed on top. He had five of those in a row that was going into, I think it was a, uh, don't quote me on this. I think it was a Kubota tractor. And so they had this wiring harness and the fuses would get put into the wrong place. He created on his own a vision system to um, look at those, um, do optical character recognition and figure out whether they were in the right spot based on the spec and alert the operator if they were in the wrong place. And it then took a picture of it so that if the company ever came back to this vendor and said, uh, the, the fuses were in the wrong spot, you go, here's the picture. They came out of the factory, correct. And so he had both the quality at the source and he had um, yeah. nice audit documentation. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's making me reflect on, like going back to 1999 Dell computer, like, the impact was pretty trivial if there was a mistake in the pictolite line, because then in the assembly station, there was further error proofing where, if I remember right, pretty much everything was barcoded and everything was scanned. And to the order, if, if there was a part missing or the wrong part, that would get caught. And that would lead to a little bit of inefficiency, but it would mm -hmm. probably protect the customer. And sure, you know, you, you would want to prevent the waste of having to go swap out, chase down the right part sure. versus the lack of error proofing in a process as critical as, let's say, gathering the right instruments for a surgery, where then if the wrong, if, if, if it's discovered once the patient has been under anesthesia and it's supposed to be detected in advance, right? But um, the, 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 the defect of, let's say, a missing instrument could be discovered at a point where now it either delays a surgical procedure, which could have a impact on the patient, depending on the situation. They could well, find almost. the error once they're under anesthesia, which is bad because now they're under anesthesia longer, or the error could be found once they've already been cut open, when that's even worse. And there, there's, I mean, I, I hate to say it, there's there, there, there's a lack of error proofing in, in, the, in that operation. Oh, absolutely. Um, and all of a sudden, your inventory theory becomes part of your quality management system. And so, um, of course, the fix for that is to have prepackaged kits. And, and sometimes you, you can do that depending on, on the procedure. Right. And, but uh, not all procedures yeah. are that way and not all doctors yeah. like what yeah. the kit has in it. Well, and if the, if the kit was perfect when it first comes in, the challenge then um, on, on the, at the end of the procedure is if you've opened up four trays, who's guaranteeing that the right instruments go back into the right tray? That's part of the waste in the process of processing and then sterilizing those instruments is kind of sorting out the mess that was created back upstream in the operating room. Well, yeah. And in many cases, they're designed with disposable product. And that's which, true sometimes too. Of course, then you've got the hazardous waste that comes from it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of these are trade-offs. Yeah. And so, so there, there and, and you know, there are some other things that are hard to error proof in that context where one defect could be the instruments getting back to the operating room. And you, there appears to be what they politely call bio burden, mm. kind of a euphemism of like, uh, well, like how, do, I mean, it's supposed to be inspected. It's certainly not error proofed, but there are all sorts of um, back to your idea of source inspection, you know, and it's, it's kind of an interesting value stream in that it's circular where 
the pro, you know, you could go back to look at the process. And I was part of a team that did this back in the operating room. If the instruments aren't properly sprayed with a foam, then the odds of properly cleaning and sterilizing them in the sterile in the sterile processing department goes down dramatically. So it, it comes back to like, hey, you know, your, your process helps us help you, but how do you do those process checks rather than just doing inspection at the end? Yeah. So yeah, no, well, one of the things I want your listeners to understand is that mistake proofing is not easy. Um, and designing good mistake proofing devices is, you know, is the pinnacle of design. The idea that you make something that is essentially um, invisible until it's needed. You know, uh, back in the day when you had a three and a half inch disc and you put it in the machine correctly, no problem. You put it in upside down, it stops you halfway in. Um, It only notifies you when something's wrong. The rest of the time, you may not even know it's there. I have a table saw like that. It's a saw stop table saw. And until I touch it with my finger, it's going to be just fine. I'm not going to know any that it's any different than any other saw. As soon as I touch the spinning blade with my finger, it snaps out of the way. I have a little cut on my finger. I put a Band-Aid on it and I'm done. And so, um, and people said, oh, that's no good. You know, uh, particularly the other manufacturers, they didn't want to use the technology. And now it's the top selling saw in the market. I wonder if they're thinking of like, well, clearly that's user error and you shouldn't put your finger or any body part anywhere near the saw. There's back to some psychology of blaming the user or blaming them for being human because we all get inattentive or sloppy at times. Well, I think what was really going on was that the owner of SawStop or the inventor of SawStop is a patent lawyer. Yeah. Mm. He had patented it. And he was trying to license it. He didn't want to build saws at all. But um, when no one else, they they could see that they were going to be paying him royalties for the rest of their lives. And they didn't want to go down that road. And he didn't want to build saws, but he was essentially forced to. So he went and found a contract manufacturer. They built a saw. It sold like hotcakes. And to this day, all of the other power tool makers are like, yeah, no, don't do that. Because um, it's like competitive disadvantage to them. or And, you know, because he knows how to play the game, he went to the National Product Safety Commission and tried to get rulings that would force everyone else mm-hmm. to buy his module for their saws. Uh, and as far as I know, that didn't uh, end up uh, succeeding. So the, 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 a quick detour, but you mentioned this National Product Safety Commission. We have a National Transportation Safety Board. Mm-hmm. There are people advocating that we need something, they're calling it the National Patient Safety Board. Um, I mean, it seems like there, there, there's, it's interesting that there's a, a societal or legal role in a place for, for commissions or boards like that, but we don't have that in healthcare. Yeah. And so one of the things that we have found out about mistakes is that people don't like to own up to them. And in particular, they don't like to own up to them if they're going to be fired as a result or sanctioned or punished or what have you. And so there's this whole other realm called just culture. And just culture is where you figure out a way to do a full and thorough investigation without people feeling threatened. Um, And yet you want accountability. If someone's been egregiously 
willfully harmful. Right. You know, those people should be held accountable. And so sorting out how to draw that line uh, has been something that there's been a lot of talk about. Now, National Traffic Safety Board does that because you rep- um, if you see another plane that's doing something unsafe or you're in a plane as a pilot who's doing something that's unsafe, you can report it. I, I'm trying to remember how that works, but there, there's an offshoot of NASA, and I think it may be the National uh, – I think it may be the NTSB. Um, and but There's this non-punitive reporting. Right. So there's a no-fault reporting, and there's a fault reporting. Uh, so the FAA will come after you, but the NTSB won't, or something like that. I'm not sure I've got the agencies correct there. Sure. Um, but the idea is that you can get a full report of near misses and actual events um, and learn from those without having people have to take actions that are against their own self-interest. Sure. And uh, people who are interested, actually, back in episode, I had to look this up, episode 112. I talked to Nada Grunden, who had done a lot of lean work. Um, she'd written a book about lean and healthcare. Her husband was a pilot. They were like personal friends with Captain Sullenberger. And, and she was a big advocate for you know, the, the need for um, you know, kind of reporting mechanisms and learning and, and safety culture that they um, you know, like that is sometimes brought from aviation. But you know, think back to Sully in that plane and his co-pilot and all the passengers. You can't really error-proof against a bird strike unless you somehow have a design that's some, I don't know, magically robust against that. Right. And so the moral of the story there is that you cannot mistake proof everything. And that goes back to kind of the psychology of errors, things that are slips, things that are your intent is correct and your execution is flawed. You can mistake against those. But anything that takes deliberation or judgment, it becomes very difficult to mistake proof those things. I'm constantly having people say, oh, we need to mistake proof that. And it's like, yeah, I can't help you. And and I think, yeah, when you talk about near misses and that opportunity, um, Paul O'Neill, when he was CEO at Alcoa, he certainly advocated for zero employee harm. And part of that was the recognition and creating the culture that made it safe, if not required, but the thing is, again, making it safe for people to speak up about risks, near misses, minor injuries. That was the pathway to preventing fatalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's pretty much all cultural kinds of things. And what we see is that any place where you have that culture, it really helps. So, you know, all of the work on crew resource management in aviation has been very helpful in terms of uh, reducing uh, problems. You know, um, once a once a warning light goes off in a plane or an, an alarm is sounded in a plane cockpit, their chances of fixing it properly is about 50-50, or at least that's what it was when they started the process. And a lot of times, everyone was so busy working the problem that no one flew the plane. Right. Cognitive cognitive and cultural issues there. Yeah. And so nowadays, when you have a warning light goes off, someone flies the plane, and that's all they do. The other people work, work, work the issues. And that's why Jeff Skiles was busy Going yes. through checklists on the Miracle on the Hudson. is the co-pilot. And Sully was flying the plane. And, and I'm pretty sure in the audio recordings, you hear like there, there's this 
procedural, you know, my airplane, your airplane, yeah, my plane, right? my plane. Um, so yeah, it comes back to culture. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's maybe the, you know, technical aspects of mistake proofing, but a lot of it is cultural, just culture, I think is an amazing framework. I think of it as a healthcare framework that others could adopt yeah. in other industries, but, you know, it comes back to this question of, you know, I think there, there's, there's two different situations. There's the mistake of giving the patient the wrong medication or the wrong dose that leads to a death. And unfortunately, society still blames, punishes, or even sometimes prosecutes Yeah. versus a situation where there are cases where I would say this is clearly something you should prosecute, where people are intentionally murdering patients, right. putting them out of their misery. Like, I, how, how do you, how would you mistake proof? Like, what checks and balances could you have to make sure somebody's not subtly murdering patients in a way that's hard to detect? I don't know. Well, I'm not going to be, you know, Perry Mason on this or um, Murder, She Wrote. Or yeah, this whatever. got really dark. Sorry. Um, yeah. So I think that you use every tool in the toolbox to try and sort this stuff out. And if sleuthing is required, you know, that is something that we've done uh, for a long time. And I think, you know, if someone is doing that, they should be found and punished. and perhaps uh prosecuted um i think that the the just culture stuff um really works for me in the sense that if you didn't intend to do harm you look at it differently than if you had a reason to believe you're doing harm so my example is if you drive to work and you're driving the speed limit and you get in a wreck you know at some level it's not really your fault you know um, you can drive 10 or 15 miles over the speed limit and you know, you're breaking the law, but you didn't think you were going to do harm. Probably understanding what was going on in your life that made you want to do that. Or the fact that everybody does that kind of changes the equation for me. Now, if you drive a hundred miles an hour to work, that's not a reasonable thing to do. Or if you know that you know they're, they're, if you know somebody is drunk and you let them drive anyway, or you are a bar who's overserved somebody, knowing yeah. that they're going to be driving, there 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 are different levels of um, you know responsibility there. But I you know I think a lot of times we're quick to sim- oversimplify it, and uh, in, in a lot of these healthcare error cases, um, find a scapegoat or you know well simple we we found the problem. We found the person who screwed up. They've been fired. It's not a problem anymore. But, you know, even back to instances of intentional or, you know, uh, intentional harm or let's say the occasional, you know, like the, it, this is pretty rare. Like, um, you know, the, 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 the surgeon who's known to be, let's say, so incompetent that they are really harming people and, mm-hmm. and others aren't speaking up about it. That, that becomes a cultural issue. And you say, well, now there starts to be some culpability on leaders of the organization, if you knew there was a problem and you didn't address it, or you stifled the communication channels that would have informed you, it becomes more than just an individual problem. Yeah, it would be nice if we could just talk to the local surgical nurses. And when they say, don't use that doctor, um, you know, they know what they're talking about. You know, they're right there with them. They know 
what's going on. I tend to trust them a whole lot. And so, you know, um, I really think it'd be great if, if all the surgical nurses say, yeah, I'd rather not work with that doctor. That's useful information. I don't know how you culturally allow that to get out, but it'd be great if we could. And sometimes it comes out after the fact in the yep. reporting about something. It was, like, it was known. We spoke up. You didn't listen. And so um, often organizations will, will need really compelling evidence to end someone's career in their hospital. Yeah. And I kind of understand that. But if the in those cases where the evidence is all there and no one took action, it, it's troubling. It's really troubling. Yeah. There's... Um, yeah, there, 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 there's an expression that's been written about and even dramatized a little bit. Um, Doctor Hodad, have you have you heard this? I've not heard that. This this, this slang. So um, Hodad is an acronym that stands for Hands of Death and Destruction. <laughs> and there's this you know this balance, and I think just culture helps us figure out where. Look, I'm all about saying most errors are caused by the system. But there are some outliers where they're either just so grossly incompetent or intentionally causing harm. Like there's a whole podcast in the TV series I can't bring myself to watch or listen to, you know, called Dr. Death, a surgeon in Dallas who was really just maiming people. And it went on for a really long time. Now, that if that's the rare exception, we need to make sure that that's addressed differently than, quote unquote, systemic errors. Right. It could happen to any surgeon. So I think it's important when you do root cause analysis and you're looking at what's going wrong, that you almost never take a negative descriptor of a person as the root cause. Right. Oh, but yes, more. Yeah. I also think that when you've ruled everything else out and you've got the data to show it, it's unconscionable not to act on it. So one thing that frustrates me, I'd love to hear your reaction to it is like, we might be making baby steps toward not blaming an individual and throwing them under the bus. But then I've heard this progression that I think only goes part way, where an organization will say, okay, well, it was a systemic problem. We're not firing someone. It was human error. What can you, yeah, there's nothing you can do about human error. I'm like, oh, that, that shouldn't be the end of the story. Right. Yeah, you're talking to the wrong person about that. Mistake proofing is all about that. Um, and if it's a judgment call, you should have other people looking at that judgment. Um, and um, you should be rewarding um, differing opinions. You know, one of the problems is if everyone's responsible, nobody's responsible. And so the more people you have look at it, the less responsibility any one of them takes. And what you need to do is see if you can figure out some structure that will keep the accountability for each and every individual so that you, you know, so if you can make it blind so they don't know what other people have said, you know, all kinds of other things that will lead people to take it very seriously, uh, that's worthwhile. You know, having five nurses check something is not a recipe for success. But um, with judgment, redundancy is really the only answer because, mm. you know, the normal mistake proofing process is not very well, good. 
Well, so so there's there's two levels of of, of possible mistake. Back to and, and and I will point people back to the episode of my favorite mistake, 186, where I do get John's thoughts on definitions of like mistakes as bad decisions versus slip-ups. So um if I'm going in for lower back surgery and they cut in the wrong place, that would be like a slip up. They intended, they didn't intend to cut there, but then there's, you know, diagnostic decisions where two and a half, almost three years ago, I went to a surgeon where you know, I had a, a really badly extruded disc that was pressing against a nerve. It was awful. And the first surgeon said in his judgment, in his professional experience, you need surgery immediately or your foot and leg are going to be numb for the rest of your life. Well, not because I distrusted him, but I ended up going for a second opinion because mm-hmm. long story short, he said, well, if you have the surgery, which you need, you can't travel for six weeks. I'm like, okay, well, if I can't travel for six weeks, I need to have that surgery in Orlando because I need to be there with my wife at the time if I can't travel for six weeks. So the surgeon in Orlando had different judgment. He had young, he was younger. He had newer education. He showed me the journal articles that said, guess what? Outcomes are better if you wait and let the body try to heal itself first. So like, quote unquote, mistake. I mean, there's a difference between a decision that the other surgeon's judgment would say isn't grounded in science versus doing the right thing the wrong way. That was a really long-winded way of trying to compare those types of Helping people not make errors in surgery is easier than doing the right, than diagnosing the right surgery. Yeah. Absolutely. Preventing execution errors is easier. Right. Execution errors are, are where mistake proofing thrives. Uh, deliberation and decision uh, in unstructured problems is where it's more difficult. You know, we're starting to see this, uh, well, we're seeing this move towards uh, evidence based medicine. And I think that's in the right direction. Um, and, uh, but yeah, even there, you're just codifying statistics to have it sub- supplant personal judgment. I think a lot of times that makes lots of sense uh, in terms of kind of mistake proofing personal judgment. Um, but you'll always have those counterexamples. Yeah. I mean, even about 10 years ago, Dr. Brent James, who is considered one of the leaders in the modern quality and patient safety movement. I saw him give a talk and he said, for all the talk of evidence-based medicine, it probably applies in about 35% of cases yeah. across medicine. Like there are some really common, really well-known things like a child with certain, you know, um, illness symptoms, like, okay, clear, poss- you know, ear infection. Like, okay, we, there is absolutely evidence-based best practice for how to treat that. Me having this weird, mysterious lower back pain, not so straightforward. Yeah, right. And of course, the APGAR score has changed medicine more than any other one thing. What what what, what is that score? The APGAR score is the score that you give a child when they're born, mm. and you look at there's there's a whole series of kind of there's a rubric, if you will. I don't know what the t- clinical term is, but a, a list of things that that you look at different aspects of how the child was born, and they get a rating. And the better the rating, in some sense, the healthier the child. And so. Um, the practice of um, uh, of giving birth uh, and the medicine around that has changed dramatically since you know the '60s, if you will, and it's all because we had good metrics of what the outcome looks like. Um, probably has some side effects, and 
almost any mistake proofing you do will have some side effects. So for example, the side effect um, in, in giving birth is there's so many more C-sections than there were before. Yeah. And, and some hospitals are really working to reduce that. Right. But that was driven by the fact that if you used a C-section, the APCAR score tended to be higher. And so any chance that it was going to impact the baby negatively, there was that much more impetus to not have a natural, you know, vaginal birth. And, and so, yeah, this, all this stuff is all mixed together. And then we have to kind of, so we're trying to port things over from Toyota production system and Shigeo Shingo to an environment where it, in a lot of ways, it's very different. Mm -hmm. And then part of what you point to, I think, is like side effects of metrics and targets and rewards where, you know, if, if surge, if um, heart, if cardiologists are being ranked, rated, compensated based on, you know, uh, post-op mortality rates, there's this dynamic of where they might choose to not take on the sickest patients, yeah. which is kind of a bad yeah. distortion of what the care should have been. Which is why I'm a little skeptical, you know, like they have health grades and things like that, where you look up your doctor and you say, is this doctor great or not great? And some of the best doctors may be those doctors who only do the hardest cases and lots of their patients die, but far fewer than expected. And so I'm not sure kind of in trying to create transparency that we've got it right yet. So... Well, as a, another professor from statistics and quality fields, uh, Dr. Donald Wheeler would say, uh, statistics without context have no meaning, right? right? So if you look at mortality rates across hospitals, could be very misleading. There are these sort of uh, mortality ratios of actual versus expected based right. on, you know, smarter people than me figure that out. And, you know, yeah, we have to be, we have to be careful with that. So, um, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, again, we've been talking to John Grout. Um, from Barry College. You can check out uh, his website, mistakeproofing.com. And again, that PDF book that you can either uh, get online or, or contact John to get is Mistake Proofing the Design of Healthcare Processes. And kind of one, one last question I wanted to ask you, John, you know, looking at a book like that or getting education on mistake proofing, like what, what's the benefit in seeing examples to maybe in some cases copy versus developing a a way of thinking and a process for developing mistake proofing. So there was a guy at uh, the VA who we were talking about this book and he says, so is it a catalog or is it a catalyst? And it's both. And so uh, on the one hand, I think that examples are a catalog where you say, I'll take one of those. Um, but there's a lot of other cases where you'll say, Oh, so they did that in that industry. In my industry, it would look like this, and it would be something entirely different. And so <clears throat> I hope that it is both a catalog and a catalyst, and that um, you design it carefully, vet it thoroughly. Um, it may have side effects, but if it does, those side effects may be far less than the side effect of not improving the system. That's mm -hmm. very well said. So I think we'll, we'll leave it at that as a, a final note. So, so John, this has been a lot of fun. I hope people also enjoyed, or if you, if you haven't go check out episode 186 of my 
favorite mistake. Lots to learn from John. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but you know, thank you for a great discussion and, and for sharing some of your knowledge here today. I've enjoyed it very much. Well, thanks again to John Grout uh, for a link to the free ebook on mistake proofing in healthcare, his website, and more. Look for links in the show notes, or again, you can go to leanblog.org slash 462. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.